tell you guys something. Before there was ever a video camera or whatever you call these things up here, or a speaker or a microphone or a light bulb, there was God. And God doesn't need our intricacies. That's a hard word for me to get out. For us to truly worship him. These are, these are uh, conveniences. But they're not what it's about. What it's about is the one who created this entire universe. The one who breathed the breath of life into Adam. It is about the one who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. And folks, I'm going to tell you, if we have to cut uh, wall, holes in the walls of this building to provide light, if every light bulb in here goes out at the same time, we're going to praise Jesus. We're going to give him the best we got, and that's what we did this morning. And I, I just want to say thank you, church. Just, just keep pouring your heart out to him. You know, if you've ever doubted that spiritual warfare is a real thing, this morning's been a great example of it. Uh, we have met together, uh, several of us, and prayed a couple of times. And uh, it, I, I've had this message. I had this message for Gary ever told me he was going on vacation. And um, about three or four weeks ago, God laid this on my heart. And... Uh, uh, when he asked me if I would preach for him today, I said, sure, I already know what I'm going to preach about. And I felt so excited about it. I was, I was just energetic, ready to go. I thought, man, this is just, this is, this is going to be uh, one of those things that I know is God-inspired. And then as the week has gone on, the more it has gone on, the more uh, battles that I've that I fought when it comes to this message, and the more I have become to understand or began to understand that what I have to say this morning is so crucial, it is so important, that the devil would do anything he could to keep that message from getting out. And I want you to just, this morning I'm not going to preach very long. I just want you to sit and I want you to listen to what I have to say because what I have to say is very important. If you want to read along with me, I'll be uh, preaching out of Matthew chapter number 24. We, we had a nice little graphic uh, up to put up here this morning. But you know what? We don't need it. You heard what I said, Matthew chapter 24. And I'll tell you about the verse in just a moment. Uh, this, uh, this past July the 30th, Angel and I celebrated 25 years of marriage. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. She has endeavored to endure, I'll say that much. Uh, it, it has been a good 25 years. The Lord has blessed us, and uh, he, He's blessed us in a lot of ways. He's blessed us with two uh, wonderful children. I love my children very much. Um, Brady is 22 years old. Graham is uh, heading up to 19. He's still 18. He's headed to 19, almost there. And uh, they, they have just been a joy and a blessing in our lives. So I don't want you to mistake anything that I'm about to tell you that I ever regretted having my children uh, because they have brought tremendous joy. Uh, some of the greatest days of my life have been because of the family that God has blessed me with. But I'm going to tell you, if you do the quick math, um, we were married three years before we had children. And guys, we had it made. Those of you who have children now, you know, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, we were just cruising along in life. We, we both had good jobs. I was self-employed. And um, being self-employed, what that meant is that I got to come home when I wanted to uh, a lot of times. Not all the time, but a lot of times. So I tried to work my schedule where I would come home around 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, which meant that I beat Angel there by a couple of hours. So when I'd get home, I, I would try to do really productive things like sit on the couch, watch a little bit of ESPN, maybe even take a nap. And if, uh, if I woke up in time, I'd maybe get dinner started before she came in the door. So life was just cruising along like that. We were having a great time, and then God blessed us with our, our uh, first child. Uh, we found out that she was going to have a baby, and, man, we were so excited. It was just, uh, I remember the days. It was, it was just an exciting time, and we tried to do everything right. 
we, we got the baby room ready. We, we uh, read books, or she read books, about how to be a great parent. And we went to the birthing classes. And I remember her laying in bed at night, and she would read out loud because we were told that the baby could hear her reading, and it would make them smart. And uh, she ate right. We exercised. We did all these things. The doctors kept telling us, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And, and we tried to get ready for it. We wanted to be prepared when he came. They would say, he's coming. And we'd say, all right, we're going to be ready, we're going to be ready. And then that day finally came. And just like that, in one day, in one moment, in just a snapshot of time, it happened. My life was changed forever. <laughs> My first son was born. And uh, all those benefits uh, of being self-employed took a little turn at that point. You see, because I was able to get off early, when Angel did finally go back to work, that meant that I was the one who went by and picked up Brady from whoever was keeping him, usually my mom or her mom or somebody, which meant that he and I got home before her, which meant that I had to occupy him for at least a couple of hours. And just to be truthful, I wasn't the favorite of the two when he was a baby. He, he loved his mother very, very much. And uh, we would come home and, you know what, sitting on the couch, that was done. Taking those naps, it was gone. Uh, and he wouldn't, I'm glad he's not here. I promise you, that kid saved the dirtiest diaper of the day for when his daddy had him. It was awful. It was terrible. They kept telling me that he was coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And he came, and I thought I was ready, but I really wasn't quite as ready as I thought I was. I wasn't quite as prepared. In Matthew 24, an uh, interesting thing is taking place. Jesus, actually, if you start back in chapter number 20, Jesus has been talking to his disciples, and he's told them, he said, look, the Son of Man's going to go into Jerusalem. When I get there, that um, I'm going to be arrested. They're going to they're try me. They're going to falsely convict me. They're going to kill me on a cross. And then from that point on, it's almost as if Jesus doesn't even take a breath. He just keeps pouring into these disciples. I mean, he is literally just a few hours away from being arrested. And the disciples ask him a question. You know, he's told them, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and I'm going to, I'm going to take you up with me so that where I am, you can be there too. And, and they've been contemplating that statement with all the things that he's talking about, all the things that's going to happen. And they ask him a question. They say, well, Jesus, when is this going to take place? When are you coming back? When are you coming to get us? When are you coming to take the church away? So in Matthew chapter number 24, verse number 36, this is what he says. But that day and that hour no man knows. Not even the angels, but my Father only. And then listen to what he says in verse number 37. He says, but as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't know until the flood came and took them away. So also shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, did you see what Jesus did right there? Did, did you hear what he said? With a very laser-like focus, Jesus takes us to that point in time. That time that humanity has been wondering about for over, almost 2,000 years now. He carries us to that point in time and he says, look, this is when I am coming back again. This is when I'm coming to take my church out of the world. Did you see? As in the days of Noah. That's what he said. So what does that mean exactly? When he says, as in the days of Noah. 
How do we relate to that? What does that mean to you and I? What was it like in the days of Noah? Well, he gives us a pretty good clue in verse number 38. He says, in those days, they were eating and drinking, and they were marrying and, and just carrying on with normal life. It was kind of a day of assumption. You see, before the flood came, everybody just assumed that the next day was going to be like that day or the day before that. That life was just going to carry on as normal, that things weren't going to change, that what had always been would be again. So that's one thing. It was, it was a day of assumption. It's, tomorrow's going to be like today, that nothing's really going to change. Now, keep in mind what we're talking about. Jesus, when are you coming again? Just like in the days of Noah. But we can find out a little bit more about that day. If you turn over to Genesis chapter number 6, and I'm going to keep you there for just a few minutes, Genesis chapter number 6. The Bible is very descriptive about what the days of Noah was like. It goes into great detail to, to explain to us how people were living in that day. So in Genesis chapter number 6, it says this. Look, guys, I, in my day, if you saw the preacher loosen his tie or take off his coat, that meant you was fixing to get both barrels back when I was a kid. You know what this means? It means I'm hot. <laughs> so if you'll excuse me, I'm going to roll up my sleeves for just a second. and They're bugging me. So it says in Genesis chapter number 6, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, they were beautiful, and they took them to be their wives, whoever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is flesh. And his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old. They were men of renown, or men of great reputation, or big reputation. And when God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of his thoughts in his heart was on evil continually. And then look down in verse, uh, verse number 11. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So here, here's some things I want you to think about just real quickly. I'm going to move quickly because I want to come back to some things. First of all, it was a day of assumption. Everybody just assumed that tomorrow was going to be like today, that nothing was going to change. Life was going to carry on. Secondly, it was a day of advancement. If you look in verse number 1, first of all, you see there was an explosion in the population of the earth at that time. Now think with me for just a second. It hadn't been too terribly long ago, too many generations ago, that it was just Adam in the Garden of Eden. And God saw that Adam needed someone for his completion, so God took a rib from Adam, and he formed Eve in the Garden of Eden, so then you had Adam and Eve. So you have one and one. Well, we know that God told them to be fruitful and to multiply, to, to uh, have a family. So Adam and Eve multiplied, and they began to have children. And then their children began to have children, and their children's children began to have children. So what started with one became two, and those two made the third, and then the third from there on, it began to expand, and it began to multiply. Now, I know the question is always this. Well, who were Adam's children married? Adam and Eve's children married. Who was Cain's wife? I'll tell you who Cain's wife was. The Bible tells us that we're all descendants of Adam. Every one of us came from the lineage of Adam. So that means that Cain married his sister, right? Disgusting, right? In today's economy, we think that's gross that anybody would do that. It was different back then. God had just started a, 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 a population, and it was okay for them to do that. And if it bothers you that Cain married his sister, think about poor Adam. It was closer than that. He married his rib. You know, I mean, it got, got worse. 
So now we've gone from simple addition to what? Multiplication. Men began to multiply across the face of the earth. But not only was it, it, it was an explosion of, uh, of population, there was an explosion of knowledge as well. You see, if you turn back to Genesis 4, uh, verse number 22, the Bible tells us about a man named Tubal-Cain. Now, Tubal-Cain, it says, was an instructor in the arts of brass and iron. Think about this, folks. They have moved from the Stone Age using rocks and sticks for their tools and for their weaponry to this point in time, here at, here at Noah's time, and they are mining minerals from the ground. They are taking those minerals and they are refining those minerals. They are making tools and probably some simple machinery and maybe even weaponry out of those tools. They, are, they have come a long way in a short period of time. So we know that it was a day of advancement, but it was also a day of apostasy. If you look in verse number 5, the Bible says that every intent of their thoughts was on evil continually. Now, there, there are several different versions of that. If you look in the King James, it says imagination. If you look in the Holman, it says scheme. But they all come from the same Hebrew word. And I want you to listen to me very carefully. They all come from the same Hebrew word that means to shape or to mold or to craft something. It's an image of a potter sitting at his wheel. And he's molding that pot very carefully and very skillfully. So what's that verse tell us? It tells us that there was a society that was molding their culture to be evil. They were very carefully shaping the thoughts of people so that they were continually thinking about evil things. Think about this for just a moment. A faith that was delivered to Adam, that was martyred in Abel, a faith that was preached by Enoch, is now dying in the time of Noah. It is fading off into non-existence. No longer are they asking, what does God say? Man, this is a whole sermon in and of itself. No longer are they asking, what does God say? They are saying, well, what does man say? What do we think is right? It's not important what God thinks is right. It's important what we think is right. If you'll remember, the original sin in the Garden of Eden was not about eating a, a piece of fruit. The original sin in the Garden of Eden was about man getting to determine what was right and wrong. If you remember what Satan said, he said, when you eat of this fruit, you're going to know the difference between good and evil. That means you are going to be able to judge the difference between good and evil. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the difference between good and evil is not a standard that we set. It is a standard that God has set. Amen? He is the ultimate judge. So a world that began in perfection in the Garden of Eden has now devolved into a state of absolute evil because of sin. And it is completely corrupt. Except. I love, I love the exceptions. Except for one man. In verse number 8, there's, a, there's an amazing statement that is made. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, don't you love that? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, did he need grace? Absolutely, he needed grace. Who doesn't need grace? You see, if you look on down to verse number 9, it, it makes three more statements about him. It tells us, first of all, that he was just. So we know that Noah was a man who, who sought to live after God's will. He was a man who was kind. He was a man who was loving. He was a man who was patient. He was a man who was not self-centered. He was not hypocritical. He, he was not condemning of others. He was a just man. He, he tried to do what was right. But he was also, the Bible says perfect in some versions, 
Other versions say blameless, and, and I like that. Perfect does not mean he was sinless. It means that he was blameless. You see, if you look over in Hebrews chapter number 11, the Bible says this about Noah. It says that he heard the voice of God, and out of fear he began to build an ark for the salvation of his family. And then the verse continues on and says this, and his faith, though he was doing something uh, related on things that he had not seen, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Noah needed the grace of God. He wasn't a perfect man. He needed the righteousness of God applied to his life, and his faith brought that righteousness. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? We're going to get back to that in a minute. And here's the third thing about him. He walked with God. You see, here's the thing about Noah. He lived in an evil time, a corrupt time, but his relationship with God was what was important to him. He wanted to make sure that he was headed in the right direction. Regardless of how society may have moved, or what they have said, or or, or what they thought of him, he continued to walk with God. And here's what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 5. He was a preacher of righteousness. Now, now, hear hear this. Noah heard the voice of God. Noah understood that God was going to bring judgment upon the earth, and that God's will was that Noah build an ark for the salvation of the human race. And Noah's life became his mission. And his mission became his sermon. Imagine with me, if you will, as Noah is out there in the middle of what we think was probably a desert area. And he's building a boat. And the neighbors, obviously, are coming by. They're talking about him. I mean, this isn't a a little dinghy that he's building. I mean, this is an ark. And he's been working on it a long time. They're coming by, and they're, they're saying, Noah... What in the world are you doing? And Noah says, well, I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Well, you see, God spoke to me, and God said that there's going to come a time when the heavens are going to open up, and the ground's going to open up, and water's going to fall from the top, and water's going to come up from the bottom, and the whole earth is going to be flooded. It's going to be judged because of wickedness. Noah's message was very simple, I think. He, he probably talked about that. The world had become wicked. It had become corrupt, and that God was going to judge that corruption, and Here's something very important. And if you're going to be saved, listen to me. There's just one way. Hmm. Wow. And you know what? I, I believe Noah probably got one of three reactions when, when he began to preach this. There were some, obviously, who thought, this guy's a nut. I mean, their hearts were hard. They had closed their ears to the voice of God. They couldn't hear anything that was being said from God. And they looked at Noah and said, this guy is crazy. (laughs) Just stay away from him. Leave him alone. But then there were probably others who reacted a little differently. Maybe there were others who who heard what Noah was saying, and they kind of sensed that something wasn't right, that something big was about to happen. They could feel it in their spirit, that that things were going to change. But you know what? They weren't really ready to commit. Well, you know, I believe in what Noah's doing, maybe, and I like the words that he says, but I'm just not really ready to tie my life to that yet. I'm not really ready to give up all these things that I do on my own and and go over there and help on the ark. And then there was probably a third group. And this group would have been the group that said, you know what, I kind of do believe Noah. I I don't know what it is about it. I I feel like something's not right, that something big is going to happen. And, you know, I, I just feel like maybe Noah's on to something. But here's the thing, we live so close to the ark 
that when something does happen, we'll know exactly what to do. We'll just run over to the ark. We'll run over there and, and we'll, get Noah, uh, we'll get Noah to open up and let us come on in. We'll just get on the boat with him when it happens. We'll wait until, until then. But I want you to listen. Genesis chapter 7, verse number 11. Listen to this very carefully. Read it if you got it. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, <clears throat> in the second month and the 17th day of the month, at the same day or on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Do you see what that's saying? It's saying that it, all of a sudden, there were no precursors. There were no notifications. There were no warnings. In one day, in one hour, everything changed all of a sudden. Just like that. Boom. It happened. And if you read on down, the Bible says in verse number 16 that Noah and his family entered the ark and the Lord shut the door. Mm. Can you imagine what was taking place outside that ark? First, the water got ankle high, and people got scared. Then maybe it got knee high, and they, they started going to the ark, and they're, they're beating on the side of it. Noah, let us in. <laughs> let us come in. Noah, we're going to drown if you don't open this door and let us in. And then he got maybe waist deep, and they begin to hold their children up and say, just save my kids, just take my kids. Noah, please carry them. But the Bible says that the Lord shut the door. Maybe Noah tried to open it, and he couldn't. I have no doubt that his heart was breaking for those folks. But the Bible says that God had shut that door. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus, when are you going to come back to take your church out of this world? As it was in the days of Noah. Now let's think about it for just a minute. What was it like in the days of Noah in comparison to today? First of all, it was a day of assumption. We just assume that tomorrow is going to come. We assume that tomorrow is going to be just like today. How many of you guys have calendars on your phones or on your tablets or whatever it is you carry around with you and you've planned out the next week or the next month or even the next year? You know why you do that? Because you assume that tomorrow is going to come. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that we all live in that fashion sometimes. We just think that, you know what, about 7, 6.45, young tell I'm not a morning person, about 6.45, 7, somewhere in that neighborhood, the sun comes up, am I right? I rarely am up at that time. <laughs> it comes up every day, and we assume it's going to set too. But I'm going to tell you, we can't assume anything. The Bible makes us no promises. God makes us no promise of the next second, much less the next day, we live in a day of assumption, but we also live in a day of advancement. As we go along with our daily lives, we begin to recognize that this world's getting pretty crowded, isn't it? Did you realize that up until the time of Jesus, it has been estimated that the population of the entire world, all the way from creation to the time of Jesus, was about 200 million people? There are over 7 billion people living on the planet today. Over 7 billion, not million, billion and it's estimated if we continue to grow at the rate of population that we have now, that we're going to add another billion people in a little less than every five years. A day of advancement, we're growing in population, but we're also growing in knowledge. Think about it. Noah's people, they used uh, brass and iron. They were, they were growing. They were learning. They were making tools. They were making weapons. 
We drive cars. We fly airplanes. We adventure off into space. We split atoms. We read DNA. We clone living organisms. Ladies and gentlemen, 97% of all medication that has ever been created has been created in the last 90 years. There's an explosion of knowledge among us. We're smarter than we have ever been in many, many ways. But here's the third thing. Not only is it a day of assumption and achievement, it's also a day of apostasy. You see, we, we read about Noah's time, how that people's hearts were continually on evil. And I want to tell you, in our generation today, we are living in a world where the secular humanist, a postmodern Christian society is being formed, and there is an attempt to banish God from all things. They are looking to banish God from our schoolhouses, from our courthouses, from our own personal houses. And we look around at our society and we say, why are we in so much trouble? I'll tell you why we're in so much trouble. Because we have taken the standard of ethic and morality, the standard of right and wrong, and we have pushed it aside and said, we don't want this in our society anymore. It's a hard truth, but it's the truth. We have said, God, we'd rather keep you on the sidelines. Even, even in our own churches, we're seeing where, uh, we're, we're, it's almost as if we're ashamed to declare that this is the Word of God and this is the standard that we live by. It's almost as if we're ashamed to declare that God's Word is divine authority and we are to embrace that divine authority. We are to hold on to that divine authority. We are to lift it up to the society around us and say, this is your standard. This is our standard. This is the way of life and there is no other. It was a day of apostasy. We live in a day of apostasy. Noah lived in a day of anarchy. The Bible says in Noah's time it was a time of violence, that people were violent. Listen to what 2 Timothy says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 1. It says, in the last days, listen, there will be perilous times. Perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. We live in dangerous times, very dangerous times. You look around our world and it seems like the whole world is on fire. It's dangerous to get out and to walk on our own streets. Not even, I wouldn't even say at night it's dangerous to walk on our own streets. It's dangerous in the daytime in certain places to walk on the streets. People's hearts have become hard. And I know this is a hard message, guys, but it's the truth of God's Word. People's hearts have become hard. We've become bitter. We've become cold. We've become uncaring. Rarely do we shed a tear over someone else's plight. Maybe over our own, but rarely anyone else. And here's the last thing I'll say about this. It's a day of apathy. We talked about Noah preaching. He preached for 120 years. And you know how many people got saved? Seven. 120 years. Seven people. Today, we, we preach the same message. We preach the, the message of, of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We tell the world that Jesus will, will cleanse them. He'll renew them. He'll, he'll justify them. We tell them that the world has become an evil place and that God is going to judge that. And uh, 
that they need to get on board. And here's the reactions we get. One is those guys are nuts. They're crazy. <laughs> those folks over at the church, they're just, they're just, they're lunatics. They're, they're, uh, they're just out of their minds. And, and their hearts have become so hard, they, they refuse to even listen to the voice of God. They can't hear a word he's saying because of that hardness of the heart. If you're here today and your heart is hard, I want to say this to you. God is speaking. Please listen to him. And then here's the next group. Those who say, you know what, Tony, you talking about this makes me a little bit uneasy. My hands are a little bit clammy. My heart's racing. And man, I'll be glad when you're finished with this. I want, first of all, I want to say to you, thank God. Thank God you can still hear him. Thank God that his voice is still appealing to your heart. And maybe you say, you know, I, I believe there's some truth in what you're saying, but I'm just not ready to get on board yet. Listen, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. That there may not be a tomorrow. There may not be another chance for you to come to know Jesus. That today God wants to pull you into the fold. And then there's that third group who says this. They say, you know what, I believe what you're saying, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I see the sign, until I know that Jesus is coming, until I know that I've got to get on board, and then I'm going to get on that ark. Listen, I want to tell you something. There will be no more precursors. There will be no more warnings. There will be no more uh, signals going out. Other than what the Bible has already told you, the coming of Christ to rapture His church is the next major event in prophecy. Everything else has been fulfilled. The table is set. The stage is ready. David has taught us the world is lining up for Christ to come back and take us out of this world, to end the age of grace, to close the door of that ark. So today is the day in order for you to get on board because there may be no tomorrow. In one day, in one hour, it all changed. In one moment of time, just like that, history was rewritten and it's going to happen again, ladies and gentlemen. Christ is coming. Get on board now. Don't wait. Don't wait. You see, here's the ploy of the devil. Yeah, I don't necessarily disbelieve him. I don't necessarily think he, he's misled or anything. But just hang on. It'll be all right tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow will come and maybe you can do something tomorrow. He will tomorrow you all the way to eternity without God. Get on board today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. You see, the Apostle Paul said this. That in that last day in that last time that Jesus is going to descend with the voice of the archangels and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord you see I want to tell you this the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord so have you the Bible says where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. God wants to be graceful to you. I know there may be people sitting in here today or watching on live stream or whatever. They may be sitting here or, th or thinking, you know what? I would love to embrace Jesus, but you know what? Ugh, my life is so messed up. I've got so much baggage. I've got so much luggage. I've got so many things to deter me. Uh, I just don't know that there's a place for me there. Listen, the devil is a liar. There's a place for you in the kingdom of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came to save all. He didn't come to call the righteous, but he came to call the lost. And I'm thankful for that because I'll tell you, when he saved me, I was as lost as a golf ball in high grass. He had to save me, and he did. And he'll do the same for you. 
The grace of God is sufficient to cover all your sins, whatever your sins may be. Because you see, he's coming. He's coming. You need to make sure that you're right. You say, well, Tony, I just, I, I just want to be free uh, finally. I want to be set free. Listen, Jesus said this, I have come to set at liberty those who are captive. Those who know the truth will be free. He said, you will know the truth and you will be free. The Bible says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus wants to come into your life and he wants to break the chains of sin that have bound you. He wants to take those things that are destroying your life and put them in your past. He wants to save you from the penalty of your sin. That's the sin that's in the past. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, when it washes it away, it is washed away for all eternity. He wants to save you from the power of that sin in your life. He wants to set you free. I don't know what it is that holds you and binds you, but I'll tell you, we have a chain breaker in heaven. I love it when we sing that, Kurt. He will break those chains. He'll break every chain. And he wants to save you from the presence of that sin. You see, one day he is going to call his church home. He's going to take us all out of this world. The trump of God is going to sound. And the dead in Christ are going to rise. Man, can you imagine that scene? The cemetery is going to look like a launching pad. Boom, those Christians are coming up out of the ground. I, I, I wouldn't mind having a ringside seat for that one. But whether I'm ringside or not, I know I'm going to be participating. Because after the dead in Christ rise, it says the church is going to be called up together to meet the Lord in the air. We're going. We're going. Listen, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready for that moment when he comes? Because as sure as you're sitting here today, I can promise you the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. You know, I was reading this past week, uh, the Song of Solomon. How many of you guys read the Song of Solomon for fun? I do. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those Bible books that's really interesting. We, we superficially take it to mean that it's a book about romance and love and, I mean, Let's be honest, Solomon was, uh, he was a smooth talker. He, uh, he told her her hair was like the flo- a flock of goats, and her teeth were like a flock of sheep, and her neck was like the Tower of David. Rico Suave. I mean, he was tough, man. But when you take that book and you really examine it, it's not simply a love story uh, about Solomon and this Shulamite girl. It's a picture of Christ and his church. You say, let me tell you the story. There's a king who, who's in search of a bride. So he leaves his kingdom, and he goes out to be among the people. And as he's out among the people, he begins to look for that bride, the one who he loves. And he finds this girl. She's what you call a Shulamite, which kind of tells us where she was at. Tells us that she wasn't in the best of places. Matter of fact, it, it goes a little deeper than that. It means that she was pretty much a reject by the religious elite. He goes out and he finds a Shulamite girl. And he begins to tell her how much he loves her and how much he cares for her and how much he wants her to be his bride. And she looks at this king and she says this to the king. She says, I don't understand why you're so uh, in love with me because I'm just a Shulamite. I am a reject and even my skin is dark. And when she says that, she's not talking about a race. What she's talking about is that she has been working out in the fields and the sun has tanned her skin, which in their time was a bad thing. She said, I don't understand why you want me. I, I, I'm, I'm a reject. I am, I am bruised by life. I am tanned by life. I have been changed. 
but yet you want me to be your bride. And he says, yes, I do, because I love you from the depths of my heart. So she says, okay. Okay, if you really love me that way, then I want to be your bride. So the king says this. He says, I'm going back to my kingdom, and I'm going to prepare for our wedding. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get the house just right. I'm going to make sure that everything is in order. I'm going to make sure that everything is lined up just right. And when the time comes, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to go and be with me. Well, in the meantime, this little Shulamite girl, she begins to go out to the villagers. and She begins to tell them about the one that she loves, the one that she loves, that he's gone away to make a place for her, that he's going to come back. And they say, well, we just don't believe he's coming back. He told you that, and uh, we're just not sure. We don't see any sign of his coming. We don't see any evidence that he really loves you that much, and that he's going to come and take you to his place to be with him forever and ever until that day. They begin to look, and out over the horizon, they could see a cloud of dust coming up. And can you imagine... My goodness, I'm just going to get down here. Can you imagine what it was like? They began to go to one another and say, hey, look, somebody's coming. Something's happening. (laughs) He's coming. Somebody's coming. Who could that be that's coming? What's going on? The dust began to rise, and they began to hear the, the roar of the horses as it's pulling the chariot, and the ground began to shake a little bit. And somebody all of a sudden declares, it's the king. The king, he is coming. The king is coming. And he's coming here to us. And he rolls up in that chariot. And the door opens. And he reaches out. And he takes that bride by the hand. And he pulls her up into that chariot. And then then he takes off in that chariot to carry her to be at his home forever and forevermore. The king is coming, ladies and gentlemen. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. Are you ready? If you're not ready, now's the time to do it. Today is the day. Church, I want to tell you, if you've got people that you love very dearly and they're not ready, you need to be on your face before God. I was able to hear a story this morning about how somebody was able to share their faith. Man, that just lights my fires to know that we're out telling others. But I want you to know Jesus is coming, and we better be ready.